message. We're now dismissed to Children's Church. Would you please turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 18. This morning is actually a first. I have never not preached exactly the sermon that I told Laird I was going to preach in advance. But it's going to have to happen today. I did give him about 12 hours notice, though. So, <laughs> um, so essentially, uh, I was, when I was initially going through Exodus, I thought, well, I can preach the whole of chapter 18 in one sermon. But then this week, as I was preparing, I, it just became very clear it was going to be a two-hour sermon or more. Um, and so I was talking to my wife, and she said, just split it in half so you can all thank her <laughs> for the courage to do what I should have done in the first place. Uh, so we are looking at Exodus 18, verses 1 through 12 this morning. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eleazar, for he said, The God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses... I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and your two sons with her. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel, and that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord, who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, and out of the hand of Pharaoh, and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to, meet, to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your holy word. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Lord, we pray that you'd grant us your Holy Spirit, that we may understand, believe, and obey that which you have said. In Jesus' name, amen. The works of God are liberating. They're inspiring, impressive, and uniting. God's saving action brings people together. It changes people takes enemies and makes them friends. It takes people that have nothing in common and gives them common purpose, common identity, common values. 
the works of God, the revelation of God, are powerful uniting factors. This was very true in Moses' life and with his father-in-law, Jethro. He saw what God had done for Israel, and he was moved to join them in worship of Yahweh. This ought to be the contagious reaction of testifying to what God has done. Jethro said, I recognize it and I want to be part of it. That's a beautiful testimony. I want us to think about for a moment how far Moses had come. Moses had come a long way. When we first met Jethro, uh, Moses was in a very different place in his life. When we first meet Jethro, Moses had been born and raised in Egypt. And as a 40-year-old, he had saw uh, two Israelites. uh, Well, first of all, he saw an Egyptian beating an Israelite. And so he intervened and ended up killing the Egyptian and trying to hide his body in the sand. And then the next day, he saw two Israelites fighting with each other and tried to break up the fight. And one of them made a comment, what, are you going to kill me? Like you killed that Egyptian who made you boss over us. And so that scared him that his, what he thought was secret was out and people were talking. And so he fled his home country, the only country he'd ever known of Egypt, to the land of Midian. He was a fugitive. In the land of Midian, he saw uh, a well gathering place for, for herdsmen. And he saw uh, the daughters of Jethro. And they were shepherdesses, and they were taking care of their flock. And there were some other shepherds who were uh, abusing them and not letting them use the well. And so he fought those uh, mean shepherds off and rescued the daughters of Jethro. And Jethro appreciated that. And so he said, well, why don't you come stay with me? And he ended up marrying Jethro's daughter, and they became family. But think about that man, a man who's a fugitive, a, a man who is on the run for his life. And now he has turned into a very different man. Forty years later, and now he is God's chosen instrument of deliverance for his people. Boy, what a different man he is now. It's important for Moses to now meet back up with his father-in-law to give testimony to God's work in his life and in the life of Israel. Forty years he had lived with Jethro and the land of Midian. Forty years is a long time. And then God called him at that burning bush to go back to Egypt, to stand before Pharaoh, to say, let my people go. And if you've been with us for a while, when we were looking at that passage, you'll know that Moses was not on board. He said, no, Lord, you've got the wrong guy. Send someone else. And God convinced him, dealing with each argument one by one, to say, no, it's going to be you. And it's going to happen, not because you can do it, but because I can do it through you. It is important that he recognize the journey that Moses had been on. It would have seemed crazy back uh, when Moses was first called by God to tell Jethro what God had told him at the burning bush. If we look back at that, um, this is after Moses has has uh, met with um, God at the burning bush, and he's going to Jethro to tell him he's going back to Egypt. So in Exodus 4.18, we read this. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please, let me go back to my brothers in Egypt. 
to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. That's the story that he told. He didn't say, hey, uh, I was on Mount Horeb and I saw a bush that seemed to be burning, but it wasn't consumed. And then I went up to see what was going on. And um, the God of my fathers talked to me out of the burning bush and told me that I need to go back and be the instrument of God's deliverance of his people, Israel. So I'm going to need a, a little while off of work. <laughs> what he said was not untrue. It's not a lie to say that he wanted to see his family, but it's not the whole truth. I think it's not too much to say that Moses was afraid of what Jethro might say. Well, you've lost your mind, son-in-law. You have clearly spent too much time in the wilderness, and you need to rethink your life. Um, going back to Egypt, to a land where your, your people are enslaved, is maybe not the best course. We may never see you again. Jethro said, go in peace. Amazing. Moses has come a long way, though. It seemed crazy at the time to say that God has spoken to him through the burning bush, but now that, boy, God has actually delivered them. God has given them all of these amazing blessings, bringing them out of Egypt and crossing the Red Sea and providing manna and water from the rock and all of these things. Now it doesn't seem so crazy at all because the evidence of God's work was there. When it was only word... It was able to doubt it. Now it has become actual reality. It was only potential then. Now it's reality. It's one of those situations where, you know, you might know someone who goes, you know, they're eight years old and they go, I'm going to be an astronaut someday. And you go, okay, that's cute. But then he becomes an astronaut someday. And now when he's, when he's eight years old saying he's going to be an astronaut, now it seems like, well, of course, that was always your trajectory. But at the time, it wasn't clear. For Moses saying, hey, I'm going to go deliver God's people, at that time seemed utterly ridiculous. How? How are you going to do that? Where's your army? Where, where are you going to get the resources to free an entire people from slavery? But God had done it. It was a reason to laugh, to scoff at. Now it's a reason to rejoice and be in awe of the power of God to deliver his people, to do exactly what he said. Moses clearly has great respect for his father-in-law here. Um, in scripture, there's a lot of in-law relationships. Not all of them are so good. Um, this is probably the best um, of any in-law relationship we know of. They never have a disagreement. Jethro is always portrayed in a positive light. He's often called the priest of Midian, emphasizing his religious faith and his religious role in his own people group. And it's amazing here. Um, there's no sense of competitiveness. He's happy for him. He's rejoicing with Moses at God's provision, at God's power. Too often times, people sort of feel like they need to compete with each other's success. If you run into an old... Uh, classmate or something and you go oh how are you doing and then he goes on and he tells you all of these amazing things you might be tempted to go well I can up that I can I can top that uh, of course in this case what's Jethro going to say how are you going to top crossing the Red Sea how are you going to top 
God delivering your people with a mighty right hand. But he seems genuinely happy for Moses and sharing in that joy at what God had done. When Moses had last seen Jethro, his faith had been quite shaky. He had needed to be convinced of God's power and faithfulness. He himself was not on the solid ground that he now is. He's a different man than he was then. Oh, but what happened? How did he grow from that man that really did not want to be chosen by God to this man who is boldly leading the people of God? What happened? I'll tell you what happened. He saw God's power. Over and over again, Moses had seen the power of God and the faithfulness of God to do exactly what he said he would do. Another way to say that would be he's come to know God more. The more that he learned about Yahweh, the more he felt solid standing where Yahweh told him to stand, saying what Yahweh told him to say, doing what Yahweh told him to do. As Moses was standing before Pharaoh, delivering these messages from God, and Pharaoh was continually rejecting and being hard-hearted, even threatening Moses, and then God would do exactly what he had said, whose faith is really being built up? Moses' faith is being built up more and more, so he's not the man that he used to be. Moses' faith grew steadily through all of that exposure to God and his power. It grew to the point that now he was willing to boldly stand before a group of people that were at times quite hostile, like he did with Israel in the past several uh, passages that we've looked at, and, and declare the God, God's word to them and say, this is, this is where we're at. You may not like this, but this is what God's going to do. Moses' faith had grown through experience of Yahweh. This is always how faith grows, though. Faith does not grow from some sort of internal looking gaze at your own navel experiment. It grows through looking at the object of your faith. Who is God? What's he like? What does he do? Your faith will grow through exposure to the one that your faith is in. And it's interesting that it is the reputation of God, of what he had done that had drawn Jethro to Moses at this point. So that the powerful acts of God that had grown Moses' faith were also the things that were bringing about this reunion with them now. Now we're told a curious detail that we don't, there's more to the story that we just don't know. In verse 2, now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home along with her two sons. We don't actually have a record of them leaving Moses. The last we saw of Zipporah was back in chapter 4, and uh, there she was going with Moses back to Egypt with their sons. That's the last we saw. Now, presumably, she was with Moses all through the ten plagues. She's not mentioned, but that doesn't mean that she wasn't there. Um, we don't really know when they left, but I think perhaps once they crossed the Red Sea, maybe Moses sent Zipporah to go visit her father-in-law and inform him of what God had done for Israel, that God had actually 
delivered Israel now, and perhaps it is Zipporah that is the source of Jethro's information. Notice in verse 1, Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people. How did he hear about it? I don't think he followed Moses on Instagram. I think he might have heard it from Zipporah, that Zipporah came and said, Dad, listen to what God has done. In any case, um, what's amazing here is we don't know exactly how long they've been separated, Moses and his family. Um, But there's almost no mention of uh, Moses saying, oh, I've missed you, Zipporah, so much. I'm so glad you're back. It's kissed his father-in-law and went and had a meal with them. Now, from our Western standpoint, that is really rude. (laughs) Um, If you're ever in a situation where you haven't seen your wife and kids for a while and they come to visit with their their father, your father-in-law, don't ignore them. You should probably kiss your wife and kids and and then greet your father-in-law. But in an, Eastern, in an Eastern mindset, it is different. In an Eastern mindset, um, family structure and hierarchical situations like this, this is very an Eastern mindset. Greet your father-in-law warmly. Uh, I'm sure he was happy to see his wife and kids as well. Um, also, don't miss that the names of Moses' children are again uh, mentioned. Gershom, back in... Um, Exodus 2, uh, 22, um, Moses names his son Gershom, saying, uh, She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. Gershom is the word for stranger, doesn't belong here, alien, sojourner. Um, That's a hard name. Uh, for a kid to bear, but it's autobiographical for Moses. He feels like a stranger. In Egypt, he always seems to have known that he was not an Egyptian, that he was an Israelite, and that land was not his own. And then in Midian, he dwelt in a land that was not his own. He felt like a stranger. This is the first time in Exodus 18 that we're told about his second son's name. His second son's name, God is help. Or maybe God is my help. Or God, my helper. Or something like that. Eleazar, Eleazar means help. El, God. Eleazar, Eleazar. Um, God is my help. Tremendously reflects Moses' growth where once he thought of himself primarily as a stranger, he doesn't belong. He is a round peg trying to fit in a square hole. Now he sees God's help. And over and over again, that is exactly what has come about. Over and over again, Moses comes up against these insurmountable obstacles. Pharaoh says, no, I will not let the people of Israel go. Moses sees God deliver them. They butt up against the Red Sea as the army of Egypt is coming against them. It looks like there's no way out. God makes a way where there was no way before. They go, oh, we don't have any food. God delivers manna. Oh, we don't have any water. God 
springs water from the rock. Over and over again, Moses knows down deep that God is his help. God is the one who supplies his needs. In reflecting on the journey of Moses, think about your own life. Think about where you used to be, the fears, the doubts, and where God has brought you now. Following God is a journey. There should be a sense of progression. I've learned things. I'm not who I used to be. I'm not who I will be because I'm on the journey. As you see God's faithfulness in your life and as you study God's word to grow in your understanding of who he is, of what he expects of you, this is an opportunity to give God glory. And it's a way for your faith to grow. Sometimes you can feel like there's no progress being made in your Christian life. C.S. Lewis likes to um, write about uh, you feel like a yo-yo with your Christian life, up and down, up and down, up and down. And, you know, the up and down is I fall into sin, then I repent, and I fall into sin, and then I repent, and then I fall into sin, and then I repent, and over and over again. My faith waxes and wanes. I, I have doubts, and then my faith is strengthened, and I have doubts, and my faith is strengthened. And he said um, sometimes it's hard to see the real progression of grace in your life. But it's more like a person with a yo-yo walking upstairs so that there is an up and down, but there is progress being made. It's an interesting analogy. But I do think there's an element of as you grow in grace, as you grow in your Christian life, you have a greater awareness of your sin, of, of your selfishness. You see it more. And so while you can be in reality growing to be more who God wants you to be, it's hard to see sometimes because you also see your sin more. And that's a good thing to, to recognize the subtlety of sin, the pervasiveness of sin. Sin is not just those, those big things like, oh, you might be able to say, well, once I, I used to curse like a sailor and now, now I don't. That's great. But you also see, boy, I'm selfish in, in my interactions with people. I, I have a hard time caring about other people. Why is that? You, you see that more. So it might be more subtle, but you do see it more. But this doesn't mean that there's not progress being made. And sometimes it even takes an outside observer uh, to, to recognize how much you've grown in grace. That's an interesting experiment to talk to someone that used to know you years ago and then to meet up with them and to see, can you see any progress? Can you see God's grace working in my life to change me more into what I should be? Can you see that maturity process? And as that process goes on, as you see God's grace, it is vital to give glory to the one who's doing the changing. It was important that Moses make clear to his father-in-law who was bringing about these changes. It was God who had done all of this for him. It was not that Moses had just overnight decided to change himself. It was God's work in his life. When someone says something positive uh, in a quality that they see in you, instead of just going, well, thank you. I am a really good person. I'm glad you noticed that. 
why don't you take that opportunity to give glory to God and really surprise them? Um, I had a guy tell me once, uh, why do you smile so much? You always seem so happy. I said, I'll, you want me to tell you why? And he goes, yeah. And I said, okay, uh, because I know God loves me, because Jesus forgives me, and how can I not be joyful with that? And you should have seen the look on his face. Um, he, I, can't, I, I can't even replicate it. It's, it's a mix of you might be crazy, and I have no idea what you just said. Um, but it is, it's a powerful opportunity when somebody says, boy, you, you know, you, you always just seem so patient with people. Boy, you're, you're so kind. Give glory to God at that moment. What you see in me is Christ's work within me. If you saw me and my sin laid bare, you wouldn't like it. Whatever it is that you see in me that's positive, that's Christ within me. The glory is not ours. It's God's. Moses testified to Yahweh's power. Notice the place of this meeting came uh, in verse 5. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. What mountain of God exactly are we talking about? There's two good candidates. Candidate number one, Mount Sinai, where they, uh, Moses will receive the Ten Commandments and the other stipulations of the covenant. Um, option number two is Mount Horeb where Moses had encountered God in the burning bush. And if we look back in Exodus chapter 3, verse 1, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. It became the mountain of God because of God's presence there in the burning bush. It was not previously a special mountain. It was one of many, but it became the mountain of God, a significant place where God met with him. So I believe that here in Exodus 18, it's probably Mount Horeb that they're encamped at. Um, it could be also that this chapter is out of chronological order. Um, some scholars speculate that maybe it should come maybe after Exodus 24, once they have received the law of God at Sinai. Um, we don't really know. Scholars debate it one way or the other, and they'll go, well, it's not structured chronology. It's stru structured theologically, thematically. Um, maybe. It's hard to say with any kind of certainty. Um, thematically, it does make interesting sense because uh, just previous to this, Israel was attacked by Amalek. Amalek uh, were the distant cousins, uh, the line of Esau, hated the law, the line of Jacob, uh, Israel, and Amalek is a descendant of Esau. But here, Midian is also a descendant of Abraham, distant cousins, through Abraham's second wife, Zipporah. But here, they get along. Keturah, thank you. Zipporah is his daughter. Um, yeah, so here, you, you might have a theological thing going on of uh, a juxtaposition of animosity within the covenant line and friendship within the covenant line. It's hard to say. Um, 
Further complicating the matter, in Exodus 19, verse 1, we read this. On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. So there you have them arriving at Sinai. And so um, are, is the mountain of God Sinai? Probably not, because they're mentioned as coming there, not the mountain of God yet. Mountain of God seems to be shorthand for Horeb. Theological, uh, biblical discussions like this are hard to say with a lot of certainty, especially because we don't actually even know exactly where is Horeb. Is Horeb on the way from Rephidim with the battle against Amalek in chapter uh, 17? Is it on the way to Sinai? We don't even know where Sinai is. So you really can't say with any kind of certainty. Uh, but they are in generally the vicinity where Jethro is from. Um, the mountain of God was relatively near where Moses had been for 40 years, um, taking care of Jethro's uh, sheep. So they are generally in the, the stomping grounds of his father-in-law here. And we see uh, that he is received in an eastern fashion, very uh, loving, uh, you know, gave him a kiss and draw, drew him in. And then they asked each other after the welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. I, I love how the context of God's deliverance is also in the context of the hardship. You don't understand the deliverance unless you understand the hardship. What have we been through? is important. And accurately portraying what God had done, he also needed to portray what they were saved from. Moses emphasized how much Yahweh had done for Israel to Egypt because it was important that Jethro understand that it wasn't Moses who had done all this, that it was his mighty God who had done all of this. Moses was bearing witness to God's mighty acts. He was giving testimony, saying, this is what happened. This is how we got here. This was not an accident. This was not a result of my careful planning. This was all God bringing this about. I stand before you as one who is here by God's leading. The more Moses explained about what God had done to the Egyptians to free Israel from slavery, the more understanding Jethro would have of who Moses had become how Israel had gotten to where they are. And it was important that he really understand where they had come from to understand where they were. Moses could not assume that Jethro understood all of the changes. He couldn't assume that because he could see the outward change, that they're not in Egypt, they're not slaves, now they're here, that he understood the steps that it, got, it took to get them there. Jethro could see the outward obvious thing that they were not slaves anymore but unless Moses explained to him all of those steps all of those obstacles overcome all of those deliverances by God he would not know we also cannot assume that people know what we mean when we say something like Jesus is my savior what do you mean savior what does that mean save save from what how did he save you Jesus is my redeemer. Redeemed from what? How? 
Those are important. So often we can sort of assume that people understand what Christianity is because at least in our cultural time, everyone has some idea we assume of what Christianity is, but don't, don't be too quick. They can see the externals, but they often have really no understanding of what, what's really going on. Um, they might be able to tell you go to church on Sundays. Your neighbors might know every Sunday you go. Uh, but they don't know what's going on in church. They don't know what you're hearing. They don't know what you're learning. Don't assume that people understand the background of things. They can see those outward things, but unless you tell them, unless you are a witness for Jesus, how will they know? Unless you can tell them, this is what God has done for me. How has the Lord delivered me? They won't know. So that's a bit of homework for you. If someone asks you, what does it mean that Jesus is your Savior? Can you tell them in a way that makes sense to them without just using kind of Christian jargon that doesn't mean anything to them? Can you put it in a way that they will understand so that they, too, can share in the joy of what God has done for you? That's what Jethro does. It's amazing um, his reaction is to join in the worship of Yahweh. Jethro gave the appropriate response to hearing about God's powerful acts of deliverance, rejoicing and worship. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people, but God has delivered them. That's the right response to hearing about what God has done to rejoice and to worship the Lord. Now, what does this confession actually entail? That question has been much discussed and some ancient um, Jewish commentators, for some reason, took a negative view of Jethro and saw him as a threat somehow. Um, I've not really been able to understand why they were so against him other than some sort of he's not Israel mentality. He's other, therefore he cannot truly share in a confession of Yahweh's supremacy. Um, uh, many are more charitable to him. They see his confession here as a genuine profession of faith, which is where I believe it is. I believe that this is a genuine confession of the Lord. The, but there's two ways to read his statement. The first way to read his statement is, your God, the God of Israel, has supremacy among many others. Second way to read it is, he is so far above, he has proven the others that he is the one true and no other can compare to him. And in the context of God overcoming the God's small g of Egypt, this seems to be the sense, at least to me, of his confession, that he's recognizing that God is categorically different than any other. There's no competition the events of uh, the Exodus 
proved God's supremacy over any other so-called gods. And I believe that this is a, a true uh, reading because of what happens next. They share a ritual, religious, communal meal together. You don't do that with someone who's not really a believer. They, they, uh, he offers, off, uh, gives sacrifices, burnt offerings to God. And then Aaron and the other elders of Israel eat this meal this covenant meal before God with him. They at least had thought that he had a right to worship, that they could share a religious meal with him. They would not have shared a meal like that with somebody like Pharaoh, who was antagonistic toward their God. They see him as a brother to worship with. The worshipful reunion of Israel and Jethro was a reunion of the sons of Abraham. Israel was the promised covenant line through Sarah and Isaac, while Midian was also descended from Abraham, but through Keturah. Back in Genesis chapter 25, we read this in verses 1 through 6. Abraham, this is after the death of Sarah, Abraham took another wife, whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The sons of Dedan were Asherim and uh, Letershim and Lumim. Uh, the sons of Midian were Ephah, Epher, Hanak, Abada, and Elda. All these were the children of Keturah, Abraham gave all he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts, and while he was still living, he sent them away from the son, from his son Isaac, eastward to the east country. So while he was still alive, Abraham made a distinction between Isaac, the covenant son of promise, and the other children, Midian being one of them. And there was an estrangement in the family of Abraham. There's still the line of Abraham, but not the, the, the promised seed, the seed of the covenant. Um, and here we have a, a family reunion, very distant cousins by this point, but still a family reunion of the sons of Abraham. Midian, while not being chosen, was still of that line of uh, Abraham. Jethro was a priest of Midian. And there's a question here as to what gods did he serve? It could very well be that he still worshiped the God of Abraham. He never once mentions worshiping any other God. And he seems to be fully on board with praising the Lord. He doesn't say well, you're mistaken about who really did this. It's really my Midian God. He seems to still be worshiping the God of his father, Abraham, as Israel was worshiping the God of their father, Abraham. Um, and at least the, the, the covenant meal here, this joining meal, this religious meal, seems to reflect that they are worshiping the same God together point being here that this is an interesting contrast to Amalek, who had also descended from Abraham, but were enemies. But here, 
Jethro, representing the Midianites, were friends of Israel. God's grace extends to sometimes unexpected people. The deliverance of Christ, of his people, from sin unites us together. It takes people that were previously not together and merges us together into one. Even more than the Exodus brought people together in worship, what Jesus has done on the cross brings people together and makes us into one church, unites us together from all nations of the earth. The beautiful thing about the Christian faith is it's not the faith of any one people group. Christian is not an ethnicity. Christian is not about geopolitical anything. Where do Christians live? Everywhere. What do Christians look like? Human, broadly. If you're a human, you can be a Christian. If you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, what we believe, what Christ has done for us, is what brings us together. People have this capacity to hate each other over strange things. We've always had this. That person isn't like me. I hate them. My group is against their group. We still see that. It tears our world apart. Christ binds us together in love. He brings about peace and unity. He brings about this beautiful picture. God's word ought to inspire unity. As we see the gospel of Jesus Christ, we should see God's people coming together from all tribes and nations. In Ephesians chapter 4, we read these powerful words. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Lord and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Whoa, quite a statement. One Lord, one baptism, unity together in the body of Christ is not just a pie in the sky. Wouldn't that be nice if we all got together? There is real theological, deep down basis to maintain the unity of the people of God. And it comes about through devotion to Christ. In other words, Christian unity comes about through sound doctrine. Doctrine means teaching. If the teaching is solid, if it's biblical, it will bind us together. In many circles, they say exactly the opposite. They'll say doctrine divides because we'll just fight. I would amend that to bad doctrine divides, sound doctrine unites. And if we all share a belief, this is God's word, it's going to unite us. Even when there are disagreements ab about exactly you know, the fine points of what, how to interpret this passage or that passage, we can still be united 
that this is God's word. We are God's people. Christ has died for us. He has called us out of our sin and into new life in him, and that will bring unity. Too often, Christians try to downplay doctrine in the name of unity. But the reverse is what Scripture actually teaches us, is that if we want unity, we need to get down deep into doctrine. We need to have our roots down deep, not just in superficial, we like to eat together. I like to eat. It's fun. But it's got to be deeper than that. It's got <clears> to <throat> be more than just we look like each other. We're interested in the same things. We go for the same sports team. It is when we all partake of the redemption of the Lord Jesus Christ, when we all study and take seriously the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ in his word, that we find our deepest unity. And it's a beautiful thing when that happens. I've met Christians from all over the world, and we've just met, we don't really know each other, totally different cultural backgrounds, but we love the Lord, and we, it's, like, it's like my long-lost brother, because he is my brother in Christ. That's where we're going to find that sweet fellowship in the Lord. So the sweet fellowship that Moses and Jethro and all the elders of Israel shared because of what God had done for Israel is only a picture of the fellowship that brings all of God's children together. They were united about seeing God's deliverance of Israel out of Egypt. We are united around something deeply personal in the deliverance of Christ. The beauty and the love and the power of God brings people together in absolutely stunning ways, ways that are sometimes surprising. I've heard stories, for example, about the uh, Christians that were once persecuted, having their persecutors who arrested them, who even killed their family members, becoming Christians, and now they worship together in the same church. And on the one hand, you might go, how could you ever forgive someone who killed your daughter, who killed your, your husband? But Jesus can do amazing things like that. Jesus has done what seems impossible by freeing us from slavery to sin through his death and resurrection. This not only brings believers peace with God, but it also brings us peace with one another, as we all recognize how much we have been forgiven, we're moved, we're commanded to forgive and to love one another. The reality of human nature is that we tend to divide and harm one another, but Jesus changes this. As he changes you as an individual, he also changes us as a community to be more loving, to be more giving, to be more of what we were made to be. Humans, as divisive as we tend to be, we all also have this yearning to be loved, a yearning to belong, a yearning for somebody to care about us. We all have that. But it's only fully realized in the church of Jesus Christ, of people redeemed. That's a unity that lasts. Sin divides people from one another. Grace is what brings us back together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what you have done for us in Christ. Lord, we thank you for the 
love and the unity that we have in you. Oh God, may your saving actions permeate our interactions with one another. Lord, may you change the way that we think about ourselves, the way that we see one another, that we may love one another truly. Lord, thank you for your love that never fails. May we be good ambassadors and give glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning we are uh, observing the Lord's Supper. This is a